Well, good morning. It's good to see you. My name is Richard. I'm one of the part of the staff team here at St Paul's, and it's uh, it's really nice to be able to speak to you this morning. We're going to talk about the subject of of anger and forgiveness. And um, as part of my preparation for this talk, I decided that I would put myself in some extremely angry scenarios. So um, a couple of weeks ago, I took my son Ben um, to see, to see uh, QPR play Derby County. Uh, unfortunately, Derby County lost, but I have forgiven them for that little misdemeanor. But um, we were there and uh, we were enjoying the game. And you know, it never ceases to amaze me when you're there watching a football game just how angry people are. It's unbelievable. I kind of picture these people that I was around. I imagine them there, Saturday lunchtime, about 12 o'clock. They're sitting there with their family having a a cheese and pickle sandwich and possibly a packet of crisps. And and there they are, very lovely, placid, friendly, easygoing person. And then as soon as they get into that cauldron that is the football ground, they become the most angry person in the world. And they use all kinds of expletives and uh, every kind of expletive under the sun. And and you're sitting there with your your eight-year-old son and you're kind of holding his ears and you're thinking, oh my goodness, this is going to be an interesting tube journey home. You know, we're going to have some explaining to do as he asks me some questions about what was being said. Uh, But, you know, I think, why do you go? Why do you go? Why do you go to spend... all this time being so angry. And then the other day, I was just driving around the mean streets of Northfields. And um, I, was, um, I was trying to be uh, you know, the best, most diligent driver I could possibly be. And I was pulling out of a junction, and I was looking really hard to my right and to my left and checking my rearview mirror and all those things that I learned all, that, all those years ago that I had to do. And I was looking really, really hard. I edge out and looked really hard again, edge out a tiny bit more, really hard again. Can't see anything coming, so I think, okay, it's fine. I'll just go for it. Over we go, and then suddenly, to my right, there was a woman driving a car, and she had to, we didn't crash or anything, but she, she probably had to brake a little bit harder than she normally would have broken. Um, and uh, I, was, I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I was like, I'm sorry. I put my hand. Sorry about this. But as I looked at her, I could see her like waggling her finger and yelling at me as, as if I'd done the worst thing ever. And I just, I just felt like such a bad driver. And um, she was just so angry at me for doing that. But in case you're thinking, oh, Richard's coming across a little bit virtuous this morning, uh, a little while ago, we were sitting at the dinner table, uh, just the five of us sitting at the dinner table, having a, a tea, and we were, um, we were talking with the children, we were having quite a fun conversation about school, and uh, we were talking particularly about what is it that makes your teachers really angry? And obviously we weren't encouraging them then to go and do that thing, but we were just having a fun talk about their teachers and what it is that really winds their teachers up. And I think it was all quite sort of relaxed and fun. And then suddenly, me Julie, uh, that's my wife, um, she's just called Julie, but I sometimes call her me Julie. Um, those younger people will understand. Anyway, doesn't matter. She suddenly, she just turned the tables on me in a way that I really wasn't expecting. And she said, kids, what makes your dad really angry? And I was like, well, comments like that for a start, that's just unbelievable. And... Um, but the thing that really got me was my children, suddenly it was like they turned into the Von Trapp children. And in, with one voice, and it almost felt in my ears as if they sung it in harmony as well, they all said to me, when we spill things, that's what makes dad really angry. I was like, oh man, 
I was so hurt. And I have to admit that after the third or fourth spillage of, of the lunchtime or the dinner time, I am a little bit stressed by it and thinking, what? But I tell you, they really shone a light on me that evening. And, and since then, I've really, really been trying to work on my anger issues when the children spill things. But anyway, this morning we're going to talk about anger and in particular, I think we're going to talk about forgiveness. And I know there are some silly examples maybe, but actually, aren't they two things that affect all of our lives? Anger and forgiveness. So let's pray and let's look at this story that Jesus told. So Father, we thank you so much um, for your word. Lord, we thank you that it is a light uh, for our feet. And Lord, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you may help us to walk uh, in step with you this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen. So Peter comes up to Jesus and he asks him a question. He says, how many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? How many times should I be prepared to forgive someone who sins against me? And before Jesus has time to answer, Peter offers an answer of his own. He says, seven times? Now this was a question that, that the rabbis of the day would discuss at length. And the general consensus amongst the rabbis was that you should be prepared to forgive somebody three times. But beyond the third time, you had no obligation to forgive them. But Peter, knowing Jesus and knowing that sometimes Jesus came up with quite extreme answers to questions, he thinks, well, if I suggest a bit more, then maybe I'll you know, get some brownie points. So he says, seven times? And Jesus' answer must have completely taken Peter and all of those hearing by surprise. Because Jesus says, no, Peter, not seven times, 77 times. 77 times. Now this conversation may have its roots in um, a passage of just a few verses in Genesis chapter four. And in Genesis chapter four, we, we meet this guy called Lamech. And Lamech lived somewhere between Cain and Noah. And Lamech makes a boast to his two wives. And he says this, he says, Cain is avenged seven times, but Lamech is avenged 77 times. What Lamech is basically boasting about is he's saying, if you cross me, there will be no limit to the revenge that I exact upon you. If you wrong me, there's no limit to what I might do. He's not saying I'll draw a line at the 77th time. He's saying there's no limits to the revenge that I'll exact upon you. And I guess that was the culture of the day in which Lamech lived. There are no limits to revenge. But it's interesting to note, isn't it, that within a few generations of Lamech, God speaks to a guy called Noah and says, Noah, you're going to need to build an ark. You're going to need to build an ark. The situation on the earth became so grievous to God as people lived with that kind of mentality that Lamech displays and that boast that God calls out to this guy called Noah and says, Noah, you'll need to build an ark. And so Jesus says to Peter, you're to forgive 77 times. You're to forgive without limit. 
And there's some versions of the Bible, some of the kind of manuscripts we have say that, it, is it 77 times or is it 70 times seven? The discussion is pedantic. It's an unnecessary discussion because, because Jesus is saying, forgive without limits. If you're counting, you're not forgiving. If, you're, if you forgive three times, if you say let's forgive three times, you're really just waiting for the fourth time. If you say forgive seven times, you're just waiting for the eighth time. If you say forgive 77 times, well, you're waiting for the 78th time. If you say 490 times, you're waiting for the 491st time. If you're counting the offenses, you're not forgiving. And Jesus' point is that you are to forgive without any limits. Now, when it comes to things like minor driving misdemeanors or spilling glasses of water at the table, okay, that's, that's easy, or relatively easy. <laughs> but actually, we know, don't we, that we live in a world where people do atrocious things to each other. Whether it's huge things like genocide, whether it's the abuse of a child at the hands of parents, people that should have cared for that child, whether it's being attacked on the streets, Whatever it is, we know that we live in a world where people do horrific things to each other. About 40 years ago, there's a man called Simon Weissenthal, and he wrote a book called The Sunflower. Simon um, was an Austrian Jew. During the Second World War, Simon found himself in a concentration camp and was part of a kind of forced labor team. One day he was out and he was working and he was approached by a German nurse and he was ordered to come and attend a a person in a nearby uh, field hospital. It was a hospital where German soldiers who had been injured on the front line were taken to and treated. And so Simon's brought into this room and he's confronted with a man lying in a bed and the man's called Karl. And Karl is covered in bandages from head to foot. He's been seriously wounded in battle and Carl is going to die. And Carl wants to make a confession. He wants to make a confession to a Jew. So Simon's brought in. He wants to make a confession so that he can die in peace. So Simon's there and he listens. Carl was part of a detachment of German soldiers that rounded up 300 Jewish men, women and children, forced them into a house and then set fire to the house. Anybody trying to escape the house was shot. Simon listens to the story. And at the end of it, Simon believes that Carl is genuine in terms of making his confession. Carl wants to make peace. But Simon, having heard the story, pauses for a moment, stands and leaves the room, saying nothing. The second part of the book is 53 prominent thinkers responding to a question that Simon poses them. Should I have forgiven him? Should I have forgiven him? And they all make their responses. The philosophers, theologians, Christians, Muslims, Hindus, all different faiths, atheists, humanists and the like. 
28 of them said no. Nine of them abstained, feeling they were unable to give an answer. 16 of them said yes. Of that 16, 13 of them were Christians and three of them were Buddhists. Jesus' answer to Peter would have shocked Peter and those who heard. But Jesus says you are to forgive without limit. Without limit. And to illustrate that, to illustrate the grace of God and the consequence of unforgiveness, Jesus tells what is a really hard-hitting parable. The first servant in the story, you know, the master, he wants to settle these debts. The first servant in the story owes what is basically an unimaginable amount of money. A a talent was the highest unit of currency. 10,000 was the highest Greek numeral. Jesus was really saying something along the lines of, it's as if I personally owed trillions of pounds. It's an unimaginable number. The revenue of the entire region of Galilee at the time was 10 talents. This man owed a thousand times the entire revenue of his region. It's an unbelievable amount of money. Somebody suggested that it would be the equivalent of 200,000 years of salary for the average Galilean. It's, it's a phenomenal debt. And the master obviously thinks, well, there's absolutely no way that you can pay that. There's no way you're going to be able to repay me that kind of debt. And so he does what they did in those days. And he says, well, we'll sell you and your wife and your children into slavery. We'll sell your property and we'll recoup as much money as we can. But the man, the servant, he pleads for mercy. He begs his master to, be, to take pity on him. And the master does something which is absolutely staggering. He doesn't condense the man's debt into monthly repayments. He doesn't sort of cut some of it off and say, okay, we'll forget that bit, we'll just repay this bit. He takes the debt and he just cancels the entire thing. He cancels the entire debt that this man owes. A thousand times the revenue of the region just cancels the debt. Can you imagine the relief Can you imagine the relief that that man must have felt in that moment? The gratitude. I don't know if you can relate to this, but um, every now and again on a Sunday morning, I uh, I wake up in in a bit of a panic because I've had a dream or I wake up thinking, oh my word, I'm preaching this morning and I haven't prepared anything. I don't know if any of you can relate to that. Maybe you do presentations at work or something. I don't know. You have those kind of things. You, I wake up, oh no! And then I go, oh, it's okay. I'm next week. And then I relax. I mean, I feel a great sense of relief when that happens. Imagine the relief and the gratitude of this man when his entire debt is cancelled. But Jesus tells the story to illustrate the grace of God. That is the grace of God. That God forgives. That God cancels 
the unimaginable debt that we all owe. You see, the Christian life is born in forgiveness. The Christian life is born in forgiveness. It's born when someone comes before Almighty God and says, God, would you have mercy on me? I recognize that I owe you a great debt, that I'm a sinner. Would you have mercy on me? Christian life is born in forgiveness. The first word that Jesus said in Mark's gospel was repent. Turn around. Confess your sin. Know the grace of God. And our common life together as Christians constantly points us to the fact that we believe in a God who forgives sin. Our family prayer says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Our family meal at the center of it is that moment where Jesus takes the bread and then he takes the cup and he says, this is my blood of the new covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Our family statement of faith, if if we have such a thing, we don't have such a thing in our house, but you may in yours, I don't know. The Apostles' Creed, it says this, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. The servant's debt is cancelled because of the mercy of the master. And it's a picture of God's astounding mercy towards us. And if you've never known that mercy, well, you can know it this morning. But this servant, he does something which is um, it's truly unthinkable, really. This servant who has been forgiven this debt... He leaves the meeting and he comes across a fellow servant who owes him what is a reasonable amount of money, probably the equivalent of a few hundred pounds. But it's a fraction of what he himself owed the master. It's actually such a small fraction, it's one six hundred thousandth of the amount that he owed to the master. He comes across this guy that owes him this money and he just loses it, he chokes him. The man is pleading for mercy with him as he himself has done before, his master. But the servant, the first servant, has no pity on him whatsoever. He throws him into prison until he can repay the debt. The other servants, they get wind of it and they report it to the master. And the master and the servants are outraged at what this first servant has done. And the reason they're so outraged isn't because this man was acting unlawfully. He was perfectly within his rights to do that. That's how they sometimes recouped debt. He had every right to do that. But what so outraged them was they thought, how can you do that when you have known so much mercy yourself? How can you do that to your fellow servant when you yourself have been forgiven such a vast, unthinkable debt. How can you then know that mercy, know that forgiveness, and then leave the room and be so unmerciful, so unforgiving 
towards someone who owes you a fraction of what you yourself owed. And the parable ends in a really sobering way because the master then takes the first servant and he throws him into prison. And the parable ends with the jailers torturing that first servant because of his unforgiving heart. It's a hard-hitting story that Jesus tells. You know, I, I don't know about you or your experience, but I think one of the things which is so sad is that um, often my experience has been that some of the most broken, some of the people who seem most tormented, some of the people whose um, lives are, are kind of ruptured are people who you know at the centre of their being, they're harbouring unforgiveness. They cannot forgive what somebody has done. And it affects their relationships, it affects their health, it seems to affect everything about them. Mark Twain said that anger is an acid that can do more harm to the vessel in which it is stored than to anything on which it is poured. Anger is an acid that can do more harm to the vessel in which it is stored than to anything on which it is poured. Forgiveness isn't approving of what someone's done. Forgiving isn't justifying what's been done. It's not denying what's been done. It isn't even necessarily being reconciled to the person that's hurt you. It doesn't mean pretending that you haven't been deeply hurt. She hasn't done any of those things. But forgiving is a means of releasing that person and releasing ourselves from the potential torment and our desire for vengeance. So Jesus says to Peter, forgive without limit. Forgive without limit as a community of the forgiven, be a forgiving community. Forgive without limit. Should we stand together? Mark's going to join me.